Welcome to the Behavior Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply those observations to work and life. And today we have a favor to ask of you, our listeners. Mm-hmm. We want to expand the reach of this podcast and help bring insights into behavioral science to more and more people. One way that you can help is to write us a review or to give us a good rating on your podcast service. We would greatly appreciate you taking a few minutes of time and go ahead and do that. And you know what? You can pause this right now and go do it now. So go ahead. We'll wait. Really? It, are you done yet? And you coming back? All right. There you go. You're back yet. Okay, good. Well, in this episode, uh, it shouldn't even take two minutes. This should be fast. Okay, but in this episode, we talked to April Seifert, founding partner of Sprocket, and also the host of a fantastic podcast called Women Inspired. Our conversation started by talking with her about gender stereotypes and how stereotypes in general have a bad rap. Yeah, and they're really just cognitive shortcuts that our brains make. But we are so much more than our stereotypes, and we also talked about that and how we can adjust those stereotypes. Yeah, and we talked about how we adjust through either cognitive dissonance, such as finding out that April is a skydiver, as well as a mom. So she has different identities. Different then. identities. Or by purposely being more aware of our stereotypes and thoughtful and intentional in how we approach these sometimes tricky and subconscious aspects of our being. April expanded on her thoughts on implicit bias assessments and implicit bias training. And we also talked a bit about one of my favorite topics, self-identity. Yeah, you you identify with yourself a lot, don't you? <laughs> yes. A I, lot. Uh, my self-identity is very strong. Yes. <laughs> well, the conversation also veered off to talk about what April is currently working on. It's a cool project called the Peak Mind Psychology Project, and uh, it's it's very good stuff. Yeah, so check we, it out. we got to urge you to check it out. We talked about books that have influenced her uh, her career course, uh, and of course, we actually talked about her favorite music. We did, didn't we? That? Yeah, and I love the part where she talked about how she uses music to prime her activities. So she uses music to set the mood for what she's trying to do. Which is totally right up your alley. It is totally up my alley. Mr. Playlist. (laughs) So sit back, grab a drink, and listen to our conversation with April Cypher. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. It's good to have you here in our fabulous studios. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Kurt always likes to like to sort of berate the space that it's just his his dining room, but I love this dining room. I yeah. think it's a great dining room. It is until uh, you have to clean it up afterwards. And there you go. So <laughs> there you go. Okay, so we're gonna start with a speed round. Love it. You ready? Bring it on. Okay, up the mountain or down the mountain? Up the mountain. Old house or new house? Old house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Monet versus Michelangelo. I'm going to go nudity. I'm going to go Michelangelo. There you go. There you go. There you go. We might might have to dig in on that one. (laughs) Paper, rock, scissors. 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 Okay. There you go. All right. Okay. Why scissors? I feel like it's really utilitarian. Yeah? I, I just am at heart. I just like things to... Do something for me. And so so yeah, this scissors. isn't about winning the paper, rock, scissors thing because. No, I'm like, which one of those? Like, if I had to take one of those to a desert island, is literally where my mind went. I'm like, I want the, I want the scissors. <laughs> I can find a rock, and the heck am I going to do with paper? But I want the scissors. Oh, there you go. If you're going to a desert island, paper for the glass bottle so you can write your note. Dude, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, okay. let's move on. So, uh, okay, a social cognitive psychologist. Yes. For, for those who aren't familiar with social cognitive psychology, can we just start with a little explanation? Yeah, let's start on the back end and then move forward because that's easier. Psychology, people know, and if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you know what that is. Uh, cognition and cognitive psychology specifically deals with how people encode and organize and retrieve information cognitively. And this can be information about almost anything. And that brings us to that first word, social. I'm really interested in how we encode and organize and retrieve and use information about people, whether that is individual people, the social setting they're in, social groups that they might be a part of, or all of those factors interplaying together, uh, that's the type of thing that I really love to study. So how do we interact with each other from the perspective of how does all of that information get sort of, you know, organized in our mind? I also know you're kind of a data geek. So yeah, yeah actually may, not maybe, but, but you're a data geek. A so, how, so how does that work with the, the, the social side you know, and, and the cognitive side? Because I mean, that's very behavioral. It is. Yeah. I like to tell people that I am multi-passionate. I just really, (laughs) it's a nice way of saying I do a lot of stuff and sometimes it doesn't join completely. But no, I really love, I just have a lot of loves and I love data and data analysis. I love the power that, you know, it, it can bring to organizations and to help solve problems. And two, when you go through, you know, social cognitive psychology is an experimental form of psychology, Mm -hmm. meaning not clinical, not counseling. I don't see patients. It's not that type of venue. I do research and I analyze data. And so that's really, it all began in the same place, but then, you know, the social cognitive psych went a much, much more applied route and the data science went a much more database machine sort of route, just organically. So give us an example of how, um, how you might apply this kind of uh, encoding uh, the way our mind is, is remembering and recording stuff uh, in a corporate setting. In a corporate setting. Wow. Um, or you know, not. <laughs> well, I mean, well <laughs> I mean, really, so in a corporate setting, there the same sorts of rules apply as anywhere else. You are still in a situation where it is people interacting with other people. Yep. And all of those same types of social cues that help, we were talking right before we started recording about priming mm-hmm. and bringing up some of those associations, those cognitive associations that we have, all of that still applies in a corporate setting. So for example, we have, you know, the, the work that I did, especially for my dissertation, focused on gender stereotyping. Mm, and that yeah. sounds so negative. And it, you know, and when we talk to people in sort of like lay conversations, they think stereotypes, this is so terrible. Yes. Really, from a social cognitive psychology perspective, they're not necessarily positive or negative things. They're just your brain doing its job and making connections between information that it sees that repetitively happen together. But some, but we have linked stereotypes with bad. Yes. Not not even good. I mean, it's rare that we think about good stereotypes much, but but typically we think of bad. It's that labeling of the the word itself has that negative connotation. Correct. So Correct. okay, but but back to your we'll we'll come back to that in a second. Back to your dissertation about the, these gender stereotypes. Yeah. So really, stereotypes are just 
cognitive associations that we formed over time, they just happen to deal with people as the, you know, concept that we're looking at. So in terms of gender, you know, we all have stereotypes or cognitive associations about men and about women. And these associations will take women because that's what we, I focused a lot of my research on. Women are seen as very nurturing and very maternal and very nice and uh, communal. We are not seen as strong and dominant and uh, driven and mathematically inclined right, and other things. Right. And so if you think about that in the context of your question, in a corporate setting, seeing somebody's gender, seeing somebody and realizing that they are a man or a woman can prime these cognitive associations and that can lead you to be more likely to, it's not a given, more likely to behave toward that person in a way that conforms to those stereotypes. So you expect yeah. that person to live up to the stereo the stereotype that you have about their social group. Will that also then influence um what we're taking in and how we're encoding the information that we get. Hugely. Yeah, so that if, if, if my stereotype is informed in a particular way, uh, I'll have that, that confirmation bias going all day that is primarily seeing and encoding and recording the things that, that conform with, with my, my view, my stereotype, right? Totally. I mean, a stereotype yeah. is something that operates very much, you know, we're getting a little bit away from it, but like a belief. And so mm -hmm. confirmation bias does color all of that. It's that filter that it doesn't, it's just a natural thing. 100% of people have this. Women have this about women. I mean, because yeah. we all grew up in this society where we got the same information. There was a research study and I can't remember who did it or when. And so if you know about this and I'm misquoting this or doing this, please correct me, uh, that looked at Again, the stereotype about women and, and math is hard, right, for women. Mm -hmm. And yet there is another stereotype about Asian ethnicity and being smart mm -hmm. in math. And so when they primed women, um, Asian women, with their uh, with uh, a gender perspective, they performed worse on math tests. Yes. When they primed oh, them right. with their Asian ancestry, they actually performed better on math. Do you, is that sounding yes. like something you've seen or heard? Exactly in line with yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it's a fascinating component because as we were talking earlier before the show, that priming component should actually you know, if we think about this rationally, why would that have any impact on how we behave? But it's Yet so it powerful. It really does because of the cognitive ways that our brain process the information. So yes, absolutely. And I love the example you gave because there are practical ways, you know, for the audience listening to this, to think about how that same person, an Asian American woman, might feel more Asian or feel more female depending upon the context that she's in. So I work in data science largely. Do you know how many times I walk into a room and I'm the only woman there? <laughs> I feel really female. Now I'm more used to it. I'm more used to being sort of a you know minority gender in that context. Mm -hmm. But it happens similarly where whatever you happen to be whatever social groups you're a part of, whether it's ethnicity or gender, you walk into a room where you're the only one of that, 
you're going to feel that part of your identity a lot more. That's going to prime all of this stuff a lot more. So that's where like, you know, we get into discussions about why is it so important to have a balanced, you know, representation of people? It shouldn't be that big of a deal. It really is because it starts to prime some of these aspects and influence behavior largely without us even realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. Cialdini talks about uh, how, when you're in your hometown, you're going to be aware of of all the differences that you have with everybody mm-hmm. in your in your in your hometown. The people that you agree with politically or disagree with politically, you're gonna you're gonna see yourself in a particular gender role and a particular role within the community. But if you go to if you go to Europe, if you're an American and you go to Europe and you're wandering around Paris and someone makes a comment about an American, you know, hey, it's like hey, that's me. Yeah. You know, and, and yet we're not framing ourselves. We're we're not thinking about ourselves as American when we're wandering on our hometown, but man, take us out of that context and put us in a world where we are deeply um, the minority, yes. then it gets back to you know deeper roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was surprised that, that he used, I mean, when I think about gender identity would be super powerful, right? That, that would seem to be stronger than just uh, than national identity. Yeah, I mean, there's whole books. I mean, we're all from different planets, right? Mars and Venus and all the things. I mean, gender is a really important part of our identity. And it can be that maybe you identify with the core pieces that are stereotype congruent. And maybe it is that you vehemently do not identify with those pieces. But Either of those can become really important to who you are and who you see yourself as. So help me explain that a little bit more when you don't conform to those uh, preconceived notions. What Help me understand. I mean, so you can, there are certain individuals if, if you know, I don't view myself as a bald, middle-aged man, I view myself as a... 20 something what how does that work with long flowing hair in my, in my dreams <laughs> <laughs> that i have to constantly <laughs> be flipping oh, back my head in back my and face <laughs> yeah i get it uh well one one conversation that uh you know we had recently was around um you know at the time of recording this i am extremely pregnant and <laughs> that is a really big visual cue to people that oh this woman not only as a woman, obviously, but she is a mom type woman. She's making a child currently. Mm. Maybe she has another child and that's a really big cue that, oh, she's a really like maternal, soft, loving, nurturing person, which I like to think that I'm that person at times. But but it doesn't define you all the time. No, no. And so I'm not the type of person people's mind doesn't it doesn't immediately go to, huh, she must have spent 90% of the last, you know, hours of her waking hours of her week coding. That must have been what she was doing this week. I'm really excited to be here because I'm not coding right now because I did a lot this week. It's fun, but there's a limit. But they don't immediately go to, she codes. She must be a power lifter. She must be a skydiver. She must like adventure sports. She must, no one thinks about that. And those are very important parts of my identity but they're not cued by this big basketball I'm carrying around under my shirt. But if you came in and you were um, wearing a skydiving outfit or in that kind of component, does that then, so those outward cues are what people associate with that identification 
Is that how that works? I feel like I paid you fifty dollars to ask okay. me that question. <laughs> later, I'll, I'll later. collect later. Later. <laughs> it's a great question because there's this notion in stereotyping literature that gets at two things, two cognitive tricks that people use when they encounter counter stereotypical people. Okay. So, and this is really what my dissertation was about. It was so fun. Can't wait. This is going to be, this is, this is, this is, we're getting to the highlight of the entire someone, podcast. Someone might download it. I don't, I think maybe a dozen people have, and my mom might've done it six times. We'll put it, we'll so, put, well, we'll put the, uh, we'll, we'll put, put the, the link, link on. on. There yeah, you go. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, what, are the, what are the two tips? So. People will, people use these two cognitive tricks. So they might see a woman, you know, in the way that I talked about myself as a skydiving person or whatever. Another example might be a lesbian woman. Another Mm -hmm. example might be someone who's really, really sexy with really provocative clothing or a woman who is a leader in her organization. Um, If we take that totally out of context and put it on a different social group, we think about African-American people and Barack Obama is a great example that is counter stereotypical to the stereotype most people grow up to have about African-American people. Now, there's two ways that people sort of reconcile that because there's some dissonance there, Mm -hmm. right? Like, no, April's got a belly. She's supposed to be a mom and really communal and nurturing and whatever. I don't know what to do with that skydive and powerlifting thing. Mm -hmm. You can subgroup, meaning you create you recognize the fact that there is something counter stereotypical and you adjust your stereotype, your cognitive stereotype to now include this new information. Now you can imagine how that is a little bit cognitively risky because the more people you encounter who are counter stereotypical, like your stereotype goes out the window and it doesn't work for you anymore. It's no longer a heuristic shortcut, which is problematic because we rely on those. It is. We do. So, the second trick that people use and they kind of waffle between them and and there's a there's a lot of nuance as to when people use which ones but is subtyping and it's this idea of being an exception to the rule mm. we're going to say yeah april's a woman but she's a different kind of woman mm-hmm. barack obama yes he is black but he's a he's a different kind of black guy and so mm-hmm. they don't have to adjust a cognitive stereotype. You get to keep it. You get to keep all the like really quick decision making that a heuristic brings you. But you just sort of acknowledge these people as exceptions to the rule. And you just throw them in their own group. That's interesting. Uh, I've done some work on self-identity. And so your self-concept and yes. self-schemas. And it, there's a similar concept in, in you know, when your behavior is... Uh, contrary to the self schema that you hold in that situation how do you handle it and one uh, is do you just ignore it there's a there's that factor of you you actually cognitively ignore that entire thing and it doesn't even raise up to the level of anything coming in to, to challenge yourself self-concept of yourself or to almost the the subtyping you you take it and you're looking at it from the perspective of saying yeah, but these other situations, it was because I was I was overly tired. And so I didn't get very good sleep last night. That's why I didn't get up and exercise this morning. Mm-hmm. When you're looking back and you're going, yeah, but I've been overly tired for the past five months. And I've only, you know, but you, you, you continually uh, do that. 
very rarely do you actually, not, I shouldn't say very rarely, uh, the other then is actually, do you change that self-schema of yourself? Yeah. And, and that one is the harder component of it, right? And so, or do you change your behavior to then match it? There's actually those four com- kind of components that people do. Yeah. But it's interesting when you're talking about that subtyping from a, uh, you know the the outward component of looking in when some that cognitive dissonance happens. So well, when we met a month ago, I had just heard the forty five and zero podcast, which was about forty five presidents men, zero presidents women, and uh, and so they, the the podcaster was interviewing uh, congresswomen specifically, and uh, so people uh, these these women had come up through being voted on over and over and over again and continue to uh, to represent their districts and their their states in a way that they uh, should be tremendously proud of their their efforts but they still struggled with this this being boxed in as does is the strong woman perceived as the bitch or is the strong woman perceived as the mm-hmm. mother nurturer who just got lucky, you know, the 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 exception, the subtype, kind uh, of kind of a thing. Yeah, and and that was really, I mean, that's that's really revealing in that that the that the women themselves, as a a man, I'm not living that life, but but to see that that even in these tremendously successful people that they're still struggling with this in their in their you know middle age in the middle of their career. Do do you see this kind of thing? Is usually. This, hugely hugely and it's you know and I don't want to just for the folks who are listening to this I don't want you to feel like this only happens to women it does happen to women a lot but it happens to a lot of social groups in general I just happen to talk about this a lot because that's where my research was and that's where I tend to focus so just understand that there's a lot of things that apply across social groups but you know the example that you gave, I mean, take the, the you know, put this back again in a corporate context. If a woman is really driven and really outspoken and in the way that she emails, she doesn't say, hi guys, I hope everyone's having a good day. I just wanted to ask to see if anyone else would blah, 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 words, 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 words. Could you, if you just have a moment, could you please maybe check on this other da, 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 words, 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 you know, sincerely words, 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 April. I love to, it's just if the she, tone of voice that you're uh, using in describing that. Yes. It's exhausting. So, yeah. or what if she just wrote the email? Hey guys, looks like we need to get this thing done. Jeff, can you take care of it? Let me know. April. Yeah. It's a really direct way of writing it. She's going to come off as bitchy, but it is more effective, unfortunately. So there's that crux. If she plays the nice card, you're not seen as strong enough to hold a leadership position. So you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Another example of that, I talked about the sexy woman, right? If you dress in a way that is extremely like you're covered up, you know, your mm-hmm. turtleneck completely Super covered up, whatever. Yeah. Look at that woman. God, can't she just relax? Oh my God. And then they'll see a woman who's on the other side. They're like, why doesn't she cover those things up? Like there's this <laughs> tiny narrow range where we're straddling the two sides of, to be you know, feminine, the rules 
too much. Be feminine, but not too feminine. You know, be a woman, but don't say that you hang out with them. You have to say like, oh, I like to hang out with guys, not women. And you have to like dress a certain way, but not too much that way. And be a certain way, but not too much that way. It's hard. And that's across the board with, with social groups. Again, we, one of the downsides to having these notions of, of what the rules are or what the bullets underneath those stereotypes are mm-hmm. is that we set up these expectations that are so difficult to live up to and are exhausting cognitively to mm-hmm. try to manage on a day-to-day basis. And, and when those expectations are broken, right? So yeah. so on either of those ends of the spectrums, how does how do people respond? So in an organizational setting, like you were talking about, um, so let's just look at let's go from the clothing component right so whether it be they cover up fully or they're just in that provocative component in 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 how they dress is there a backlash that happens from an organizational perspective even maybe not an organizational just from a, a interaction component hugely so i mean it can be anything from something as small as um, you know, conversations being cut short or people sort of doing a little bit of the avoidance or whatever down to, I, I used to work in a normal, large corporate setting. And I remember being in a leadership meeting, talking about one of my, you know, members of one of my teams saying, I really think this person deserves, you know, a promotion, blah, 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 like really advocating hard for this person. They said, well, you know, she comes off pretty harsh. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Wow. Where yeah. that would have been a entirely different conversation if that would have been a, a man. A, I a wish male. you I wish I could read you the emails that the person who said that sends yeah. on a regular basis without having any implications for it whatsoever. Uh, and it's I know there's been some recent research and I haven't looked into it. I've just seen the the memes going by in regards to memes uh, are super had, helpful for yeah, psychology. They, they, <laughs> like they're they informative. Have, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they get to the point of it. It's like, come on, Those here it is. Memes. I don't need to read the background. I can just take this, you know, headline and I can Give me run a cat with it doing something funny. believe whatever it says. But they were talking about, uh, they were having people draw, uh, leaders. And mm-hmm. when people drew leaders, the vast majority of them were male. I mean, that was the, regardless of age, regardless of even gender, yeah. when, when you were asked to draw, you know, draw a leader, when they, when somebody drew a leader, most times it was a male component within that leadership. And or, so, or the old Kahneman and Tversky story of, of the, uh, you know, how, how do we find out who this person is? Uh, a, a child was brought into an emergency room and the doctor that, that came in to, to see the child uh, was the parent. And, and so, the, and they lead this conversation and then they immediately say, well, what did he do? What did the, what did he, the doctor do? It's like, no, no, no. Actually the doctor was a woman. Mm-hmm. It was, it was her son that was, that was coming in. Some 90 plus percent of people went to he and not to she, uh, in, in that situation. Mm-hmm. And you go, wow, these are, these are really deep. These stereotypes are seem really deeply seated. Yeah. Um, is this just how much of this is social? How much of this is is environmental within a culture 
say, if we compared to uh, Asian cultures to Western cultures, or uh, if we compared South America to North America, April, what are there? There's stark differences between these, or or not so much. There's differences to the degree that those social groups are seen differently. So largely across the globe, you know, hierarchically, women are not at the top. Mm-hmm. Now it varies how far down that chain they are. Um, but it, it does definitely mimic the education that your brain gets as you're growing up within your culture. And I kind of want to address, you know, we're, we're talking about this, you know, pretty openly here. I want to address the person who's inevitably listening to this and who's kind of a naysayer Mm -hmm. saying, yeah, but this is a really nuanced, uh, situation, but, but women don't speak up, but women don't ask for this, but women mm. don't whatever, but, but men don't mean to, but I'm not a bad person, it's but just locker room all talk. the butts. I know. Um, <laughs> ah, he's everywhere. Um, <laughs> but you know, and I don't want to discount the fact that certain behavioral things may happen. There are behavioral differences. There are, you know, a lot of, you're absolutely right. This is a very nuanced impact or a very nuanced topic. But what I'm saying is one of those important facets to understand is the fact that our brain is wired to learn information. That's why my kid, who is two and a half, four months ago could say, you know, maybe a hundred words. And today we're like, everything that comes out of her mouth is the first time she's ever said that. This is crazy. This is why our brains are incredibly good at associations and learning. And that's all that's happening. You are not a bad person. If you have stereotypes, it means you just grew up with an adaptive brain. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage you to just think about this as one facet in a very complex topic You can actually go online and test yourself. If you Google implicit associations Mm. test, you can actually go online, pick your poison. You want to pick religious groups? Great. Pick them. You want to pick, you know, a racial or ethnic group? Great. Awesome. You want to pick gender as the thing you're going to study and you want to really like go for a mind fuck? Pick your own social group. Mm. And like I score as having stereotypes against women. I'm a woman and I study this. Like it just means I have an adaptive brain and I grew up in society. That's what it means. But what happens from there and the degree to which we accept that and just take responsibility for, yeah, it's not my fault. I didn't ask to be here. I didn't do this to myself, but you are responsible for what happens from this point forward. And so we can be adults and and not point fingers and place blame, but also try to rectify a situation and do better. So so what what can we do? What are some ways either on an individual level or an organizational level to combat some of the more negative aspects of this. Because again, our brains do this for a reason, right? It's the heuristics, easy, so we're not having to process every single time that we see somebody, but how do we combat the negative components of that? Yeah, so I'll say two pieces. One is definitely awareness. I feel like now that we've had a lot of the... um, the news that have come out that has come out about you know police shootings at traffic stops i can send you studies from a decade and a half ago 
where literally they were studying this exact same, this exact thing, like this scenario. Our stereotypes work in overdrive when we are stressed and we can't cognitively process and we have to make a decision fast. Yeah. Is that a cell phone, cell phone or a gun in that person's hand? Are you going to shoot or not shoot? That was literally the study. And black people got shot more often. That officer did not ask for those stereotypes, but they do have them and they do Im- they have implications. They're people. So be aware that the fa- of the fact that these things are happening. Go to the IAT website and test yourself and just know that this is the case. So step one, I would definitely say awareness is a big deal and continuing to talk about the fact that these are things that operate below our level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. We don't know they're happening and it doesn't make you a bad person, but you do have to do something about it. The second thing I would say is there's been some pushes. So let's go to um, uh, pay disparity. There's been some pushes to not ask people what their prior salary was or submit people's um, job applications or their letters of recommendation or whatever it happens to be. No photos, no names, no gender identifying or racial ethnic identifying information attached because there you're not subject to things like the shifting standards um, uh, phenomenon where, you know, you have one person who has a lot of experience and one person who has a PhD and depending upon which one you alter to be the woman in the experiment, the person will say, well, but that person didn't really have any practical experience. Well, yeah, it's great to have practical experience, but we really need somebody with a higher degree. I mean, you're just, again, you're not a bad person. You're not intentionally trying to harm anyone. It's just this reptilian part of your brain that was just, you know, evolved to keep you alive doing his thing. And so as much as we can just keep it in check, I think that's the best route to go. And that's where you see, you know, legislation and rules and looking at proportions of people at certain, you know, levels of companies and that type of thing in an attempt to do that. I just think we can do it in an informational way where we just mask some of that priming information from ourselves. So there was an orchestra and I can't remember if it was the Philadelphia or New York Orchestra, where they ended up uh, shifting the, how they interviewed people for the, the component, and they basically hid the person performing. So they put them behind mm. um, curtains. and the Like the, the voice. Res- the it's result, like the voice yeah. with Christina Aguilera. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's actually, there. which is pretty interesting. And the result of that was that many more women were granted, got into the orchestra based on their performance, Sheer performance. because it, it wasn't primed that, it, and again, to that component of, it was some some subconscious component that was lending itself to when they were doing these interviews that, oh, that man has more finesse and whatever mm-hmm. it is. I don't know anything about orchestra. You're the musician in here. But, <laughs> um, that component. And so in, in that blinding of that component, it was very had a drastic impact on the the result. And so what I'm hearing you say is if we can stop some of those priming components in these situations, that can be a way of of rectifying some of the, the negative aspects that are coming into this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it's about being intentional ahead of time and thinking about who what are the criteria of the type of person who would be the best fit for this Um, for this position, thinking about that before you're bombarded with 
job applications and background materials on people think, you know, it's, it's more of a strategic, intentional decision-making process ahead of time. And that's the whole thing, right? We either operate system one, system two, we operate heuristically or we operate thoughtfully and intentionally. And you're just kind of pushing yourself in the direction when you're making these really key decisions, you're pushing yourself in the direction of being more thoughtful and intentional. Now you're still going to make snap judgments. You're going to walk down the street and you're going to see someone when there's no chips at stake, when nothing really matters, you may or may not make eye contact with that person based on what they look like. Those things are likely still to happen. But in these situations where, I mean, someone's livelihood is on the line, someone's life is on the line, we should be really thoughtful and intentional about how we set ourselves up to do better. So it's okay when uh, the hiring manager says, you know, my team is not diverse enough. Basically, if we're, the hiring manager says, we've got a team of, of uh, 10 people and nine are white guys between 35 and 45, actually, we need to, to change things up. It's okay. In the- so let's get a 50-year-old white guy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 51. I, I just had a birthday. 51-year-old white guy. white guy. Here we go. And bald, because that would diversify. <laughs> but that's okay, right? To, to be thoughtful and intentional about saying, we want to, to have uh, someone who is not a, a 35 to 45-year-old white guy. On, yeah, on, on and the team, right? you know, and what I encourage people to think about with that again, I'm going to talk directly to the naysayer who's like, "Well, you're just excluding a whole group of people. Isn't that just excluding like you're picking one group that you excluded before, and now you're excluding now you're another one?" It's it's more about your recog- again awareness. You're looking around your team and saying, "Ooh, we got like a big old sausage party going on here in data science." <laughs> Hi, I go to it often, and it it is it's very male dominated. Uh-huh. So you're just recognizing and becoming aware of that fact. You are not necessarily like again. You're not. There are bad people out there. There are bad people who have really like bad attitudes toward people. Let's set them aside and just assume positive intent. You're likely not sitting around thinking, wow, how can I exclude all those chicks and all those people who aren't white from my team? You're not intentionally doing that. So in that respect, like, I don't want to assign blame or assign fault. It's more just be aware and set yourself up to make a better decision. The next time you hire, if you mask all that information, you may end up with a 40-year-old white dude. He might like objectively have been given that one situation and that one group of you know, applications, he might've been the best option, or you might see what happened in the example that you gave over multiple hiring rounds, all of a sudden things start to shift and it's like, damn, this actually was happening. Yeah. So April, what do you think about it? Or do you have any thoughts on implicit bias training? I, and I'm going to the Starbucks. Uh, so when this is oh, being, wow. yeah. uh, going on, you know, not too long ago, Starbucks uh, had called in a black patron who was waiting for some friends to come in the police game. Two, 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 and they were arrested. And so now Starbucks is taking an entire day off and, and closing down their stores for a morning or an afternoon and doing implicit bias training. And just want to know your thoughts on whether or not you think that's impactful, effective, because I've heard contrary perspectives on it. I mean, I think it helps on the, depending upon what they're planning on doing. I don't know what they're planning on doing, but I think it's helpful on the awareness 
front. Implicit bias is something that is thrown around a lot these Mm -hmm. days. Like I said, because there's these examples coming up in the news, social media and the fact that we walk around carrying a video camera at all times helps bring these things, you know, to be more, we're more cognizant of it now. We're labeling what's happening now. I think it is important for well-informed people who actually know what implicit bias is and can give a good overview of what it is. I think that's important for people to understand it. Um, It's more nuanced about how you apply it, though. It's not going to be, you know, a situation where all of a sudden you're going to erase, you know, if you have a 25-year-old barista working at Star... I almost said Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Can anyone do Hello. a Chewbacca impression really <laughs> quick? Working at Star Wars. <laughs> um, the Millennial Falcon. Millennium. Jesus. The Millennium Falcon. Yeah. The Millennial Falcon. The Millennials. I feel like I, I feel like. Barista on oh Millennial Fulcrum. Oh my God. Anyway. So you, you have somebody who's 25 years old who has 25 years of training right. to cement those stereotypes it's really difficult to reverse those immediately. It takes a lot of intention, yeah. effort. It's not going to happen in an afternoon. Well, and you even said you work in this, and you took your you did your own group yeah. and different things. And I, I know, you know, being being a behavioral scientist and knowing the components of you know social proof and different things. And I know, I know that I shouldn't be swayed by some of that component, but I still know that I do. I mm-hmm. am. I mean, I am not above because I'm aware of things. Confirmation bias is constant, right? I am continually realizing that I'm going to something and I'm going, oh yeah, I believe that. And then it's like, wait, why am I believing that when I haven't even looked into it any further? Mm-hmm. So you, you talk about uh, looking at your own, um, it, it, taking the test and, and sort of looking at your own situation as the ultimate mindfuck. Was it for you? Did you have this no way kind of experience when you when you took it or were you already pretty self-aware uh, that you were going to have your own biases in these in these areas you know um etc yeah the first time i took it i was in graduate school learning about this for the first time it was crazy yeah it was insane to think about Did you feel parts of your mind just exploding yes and then i felt incredibly guilty like what am i doing to other women and how might this have been affecting me and oh my god and then you start to think about the implications for you know, other social groups and, you know, like if a Muslim person grows up in the United States and starts to form that stereotype about their own group that, you know, there's terrorism and violence and all of this stuff and the gender that, you know, is associated with that stereotype, like the gender implications for it, what that does to your self-identity, I'm like, Mm. damn, no wonder why we behave in the way that we do no wonder why people's identity, like we talk a lot about, you know, in sort of the more broad self-helpy sort of literature talks about like self-limiting beliefs and things mm-hmm. like that. No wonder why that's a thing. And they came from somewhere. Yeah. And so it's amazing, right. you know, to think through all of those pieces, but it started, and that's why I said awareness is a big deal. It started by me taking that test and kind of eating my own dog food and getting a dose of my own medicine and being like, yeah, 100% of us are going to score 
in not a very favorable direction on most of those tests. To yeah. some, to some degree. To some right. degree. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Uh, this is, this is fun. I want to, I'd like to just change over because you're launching peak mind psychology. Yes. And I, if, if it's okay with you, Kurt, could we talk a little bit about peak mind psychology? You could it, just it, say, it, no, screw you. <laughs> what the and, hell are and you we're doing? We're still going to go there. So <laughs> let's Overall. just go there. <laughs> no, I, I, but it's positioned in a way so that Kurt really doesn't have any power to overturn it, but I, like I want to act like I'm giving him the power to overturn it, even though he doesn't have the power to overturn it. All the important the tools and technology are sitting in front of you. So yes, Tim you has control. control. <laughs> so if you ever wonder why this turns out horribly or great, um, we'll, we'll all lay it Finger on you. Oh, snap! <laughs> Tell us about Peak Mind Psychology. So Peak Mind Psychology uh, is the Center for Psychological Strength, and it is a, a venture that is that I'm starting with a great friend and former graduate school colleague of mine, Ashley Smith. She is an extremely talented clinical psychologist in the field of anxiety. And you know, we've talked a lot in this episode about cognitive associations. I almost feel like the majority of psychology, upwards of 85%, has this in common that, guess what? Our brains are adaptive. Mm-hmm. They learn and they form associations. And therefore, this other stuff happens. Yeah. And so to change what happens, we have to change those things. Uh, so she and I got to talking about that. And we got to talking about how there are amazing tools, applied tools, not applied in the sense of policy and making big societal changes and whatever. That's important. But applied tools in the sense that people, individuals, can use them in their daily lives and live a better life, mm-hmm. experience life better because they are, you know, we talk about peak mind. Like they have developed some of these techniques and this mindset that allows them to just move through life a little bit better. So we're basically bringing all of the amazing research and all of the amazing tools that Ashley has been doing in her th- in her therapy sessions, cognitive behavioral therapy and other and friends that are very similar in some ways and different in some ways um, from that core technique, a bunch of stuff from cognitive psychology, a bunch of stuff from positive psychology. We're bringing the best stuff that has been shown to work and we're sh- like bringing it out there to the 80% of people who you know, don't necessarily have a mental health diagnosis. And the goal is to not, it's to take a wellness approach to mm-hmm. mental health. It's not to just rid you of having a diagnosis, but it's to get you much further than that and help you start to thrive and succeed and live better. That's very Because cool. there's so much power in this and I just don't see it happening in the field as much. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, if you look at psychology's history, Positive psychology wasn't even around. It's like 15 for, years old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah this stuff is really this, new. I mean, the, 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 the vast history of history. Did I just say that really weird? I called it the millennial falcon. <laughs> oh my God. His story? I don't know. Anyway, his, maybe his there's. Story. Yeah. The, the vast <laughs> history of psychology is all looking at people who are messed up. Not messed up is the wrong way. That have some clinical, you know, diagnosis that you're looking to to solve for mm-hmm. an answer not to say as every everyday people that we can be better and actually live a fuller more wonderful thriving life and i think that's yeah. a great piece and so i'm i'm applauding that because that's uh i will definitely be using that oh and we are so adaptive 
We are. I love that. It, it, that's that's for me. That's like the big hope. That's the big that's the big star, you know, out in the sky every night for me is that we can adapt. We're not we're, we're not a, a bunch of code that has been written. We're not a pie that's been baked and it's done. Well, and this is interesting. Right? I mean, we we continue to, to evolve. There, there's this the thing we when we talked about hardwired, right, in, in different pieces, and so there's a part of us that is hardwired, but that hardwire has a software layer on top of it, and that software yes. can be can be changed, and that's the part where yeah. you know that drives a lot of of what we do, and sometimes I think we get stuck. It gets into that fixed mindset or growth mindset components and various I'm different. Literally, I'm literally. Are you reading Carol Dweck? There we go. Okay, okay. Let's just make a pitch for for Carol Dweck here because she's amazing. She is Hi. amazing, and it's not just. A, I mean, there's a lot about that book that is about education, but that is a tremendously powerful book. It is, and so hugely just, so. Yeah, and so I'm going to go one direction, and then I think we need to come back to some books components. But uh, in addition to uh, peak mind psychology. You also, you founded a company called Sprocket. I did. And uh, I would like to hear a little bit about that, but I really want to hear about digital exhaust analysis because I just, (laughs) the name sounds... Dude, fantastic. that is that is the shit. That is absolutely the shit. Digital exhaust analysis. Yeah, I love so help it. Help us understand a little bit about Sprocket, and then you gotta dig into digital. Exhaust sure, analysis. sure, sure. Okay, so Sprocket customer experience or Sprocket CX uh, was founded by three people. So myself, uh, I head up the data science arm okay. of the company. Good. A man named Justin Royer. You can look for his podcast. Uh, I believe he's on iTunes and other places working with purpose. You this can find the, him this there. This is the big pitch today. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. I've got, okay. I'm like plugging my friends and all the people. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. what else? Nobody's paying me to do this, by the way. Um, he is our experience designer. He has an incredible design thinking and customer experience background. And then Trace Tronvold has an amazing background in finance, finance and economics. I call him the financy pants, uh, com- you know, leg of the company. He's not the millennial falcon. No, he's not. He's not. He's not Chewbacca either. Um, so the three of us got together. Uh, we joke that the joke is a data scientist, a designer, and a finance guy walked into a bar because that's literally what happened. And we realized that we could solve customer experience problems by bringing beautiful design and innovation to it and powering it with data science. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we do for companies is this digital exhaust analysis where you know, it's one thing to send a survey out and ask people, you know, what what do you think of your iPhone? And, you know, tell me about whatever. And, you know, Apple is sponsoring this survey. And so you kind of answer and whatever. It's another thing to get them in their native environment when okay. they're all motivated to talk to you. And that is customer reviews and customer experience phone calls that have been transcribed. All of this text, this exhaust that's left out in cyberspace. We scrape it and mine it and send it through the machines and we figure out what kind of sentiment was going on when that you know these people left positive reviews or negative reviews about this company. And the cool thing is we can do that for your competitors too. So they don't even know what's happening and we can scrape a company's reviews and we can scrape a handful of their competitors and figure out 
oh, that's adorable that you think your brand is saying this thing to people. What they're actually saying is this stuff over here, and here's what they're saying about other people who are in your same space. Yeah. So it really gives people great insight and gives our clients great insight into yeah. what, their, what their customers are saying behind their backs when they're not prompted you know, via a survey or some of these other artificial ways that or are even, helpful, well, but... You know. Or even when it is on the public record and and those companies are sort of ignoring it, right? They're mm-hmm. using their their lenses of confirmation bias to just look for the things and say, oh, we must be doing great. Well, it has been hard in the past. Like, how do you mine through 20,000 customer reviews that are text and just blah, blah, you know, yeah. on a website? How do you do that? How do you go through thousands of customer service phone calls? Like, you might, best case... You have a CRM where you check boxes that say, okay, this was a complaint or this was a positive thing. <laughs> right. This had to do with like product functionality. <laughs> they wanted to return it. You might be checking some boxes, maybe. But that's the best that people have been able to do because it's yeah. been just technologically difficult and we just do it for you. Uh, you uh, you talk about um, some of the things that you do uh, at, at Sprocket have to do with um, AI and um, and learning. Uh, yeah, you know, machine yeah, machine, machine learning. Um, what do you think of Cass Sunstein's uh, description of uh, uh, of AI more as a cognitive collaborator rather than actually sort of giving the machine the intelligence uh, moniker? I think it's a huge deal. I I mean. There's a lot of discussion right now about what the direction of AI, what direction it will likely go. I don't know. Maybe I'm naive and there's a lot of smart people saying that there's going to be no role for humans and there's mm-hmm. no role for you know the way that our thought processes work in this collaborative nature. Um, there's a lot of smart people saying that and they may know more than I do. And maybe I'm just a naive optimist. Could be. But... I've just seen too many times just in in the world we live in today, machine learning is an art and a science and the art comes in with warm bodies coming up with hypotheses, warm bodies looking at situations that are happening and then giving it to the machines to really throw gas on that fire. Mm-hmm. So there are things that people do well and there are things that machines do well. Machines can find subtle, subtle patterns in massive amounts of data that people can't do. We would do, never be able to do. But it mm. can only find that using the input variables that you feed in and people today have to create those. And, so, and, the, and the algorithms to look for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're still, I still talk about it as sort of a semi-automated, you know, collaborative approach. And like I said, there's really intelligent people saying, adorable you're going to be out of a job soon maybe i mean maybe maybe we're all just going to be like in hammocks with like our you know salary that's given to us from the government and we just hang out and nobody has a job anymore maybe universal but, basic income yeah, yeah exactly yeah. maybe i don't know but i just think i see maybe it's because i'm optimistic but i just see such a great role for people's creative minds it, it it's something we've had conversations about in the past yeah. and it is uh, it's so nebulous and the the path that it could take could go so many different ways i think it's something that to your what we talked about before there's an awareness component that we need to be thinking about it in advance as opposed to just letting it happen because i think if we're purposeful and thinking about the potential downfalls and the potential upsides that hopefully 
we're going to steer it to a, a more of an upside. I do have to say, I watched the uh, the Google Assistant uh, video where they called and made a hair appointment for a woman. It's freaked the hell it's out amazing. of me. Oh, yeah, that was... Because I'm going, the person on the other end did had no clue that that was a computer uh, it doing was a it. it. It was a machine. And they were using ums yeah. and ahs and yes. just the response in... Uh, very natural setting and you could see i mean that's terminator right there to a certain degree to me well and and i uh, have a colleague at the university of alabama who is working on uh, some google photo stuff that google photos can yeah. go in and identify objects in photos yeah gun phone in their house. native environment yeah yeah so it's, it's a photograph and you know that there's three people uh, google can identify house beach trees um, mustache you know so he so he, so he said you know I, I have one photograph from when I was 20 years old that's in my Google photos and it, it has me in a mustache I didn't label it that way mm-hmm. he said but I can go into Google photos and search mustache and that picture comes right up yeah. and yeah. and yet it doesn't have the ability to differentiate between colonial and Georgian you know? <laughs> yeah. it can't it can't differentiate between bit, yet yeah yeah, yeah. So well but far. but but that's that i mean there's i don't know if that's so much uh okay i'm gonna edit yeah we're going, yeah, yeah. Okay. we're going okay down. okay let's should we should we talk music let's talk books so oh, we yeah, talked books. A little bit. so yeah, what yeah. are some books that uh yeah, you yeah. think listeners that have influenced you that you would say gosh go out and read this book oh man um so dweck's book mind you know mindset yep. is really wonderful um that just has a lot of applicability for how we relate to kids how we think about ourselves how we um you know really have developed the way that we approach challenge that's Mm -hmm. a big deal seligman's book flourish does a nice job of giving an overview of positive psychology and um I'm going to grab my phone for a second because I have to tell you the audiobook that I am listening to right now. I literally just downloaded it and I'm geeking out over the woman (laughs) um, and I want to get it right. Her, Her name is Tara Moore and her book is called Playing Big. And what's cool about her... Uh, for people who sort of you know jive on the stuff that I did my research on, this gender stereotyping and that type of piece, she does a phenomenal job of combining the worlds of, hey, we grew up in this in this society and we have these stereotypes and these sort of gender norms and that type of thing. And oh, by the way, that's why we might find ourselves in this situation where we have an inner critic who sounds a certain way and keeps us from doing big things and so I'm like a big proponent of like lighting a fire under women's butts and getting them to go out and do these massively big goals and achieve these massively big things and her book is phenomenal at helping you do that and it's a very practical application so those three I would say I'm leaving here and going and buying that book because we've had conversations with a colleague about how we identify ourselves. Mm -hmm. This this ended up getting very personal about, he asked me, you know, do do I identify myself as a musician? And I said, no. He's like, well, you have six records. Yep. You play 50, 60 times a year. Yep. You continue to write songs. Yep. But you're not a musician. And I said, I just don't identify that way. There's something in my brain that is prohibiting me from getting, there's like this gateway that I just can't break through. Yeah. 
Okay, but this is not a therapy session. Sorry. And, and, and this Do you want to lay down? <laughs> Damn it, it always comes back to you. <laughs> I have all the technology and equipment in front of me. I will run the podcast. No. <laughs> no, you guys. Okay. Yeah, you're the elder. All right. <laughs> oh, God, I just. I'm totally just eating my way into these today. All right. Okay, so music. Um, we love to talk about music because this is the behavioral grooves. Mm -hmm. So um, how much of a music geek are you? Hugely. Yeah. So what music just inspires you? Oh, man. Um, I waffle back and forth. So I'm a big believer in using music to put you in a certain state of mind to be able to execute something. Priming. Love it. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's why literally the the podcast that I do, we have a Spotify playlist and there's a reason for that because I want people to have a place to turn to, to get pumped up when they need it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have playlists that, um, I mean, there's, there's anything from like, it's a lot of strong women that are on there. I mean, there's anything from like Nicki Minaj to, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, some old, no doubt, that's on there. Wow. Um, I really just gravitate toward really strong women. Uh, the band churches like, yeah. uh, could just die. Uh, the mother we share is an awesome song. I love that type of thing. Um, but then I also like really sort of, uh, for coding or when I need to not get distracted, which is difficult for a multi-passionate person. It's hard. Um, I love this multi-passionate I, person thing. Not a multi-tasker. <laughs> it's a multi-passionate no, type no, of No, no, it's a positive framing yeah, of it. It, really it makes is. me it's feel great. good about myself. I know, I love it. Um, no, then I need something that's more of like a chill, ambient sort of house music kind of thing. Nora and Pure and that type of thing. That's just more of a calm house sort of XM chill station. There really love. Okay. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so you, you, you're, you're drawn to both. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this is a psychological question about music that I've been wondering about. Why is it that so many times we, we ask this question about songs or, or artists, musical artists that define our podcasts or, uh, interviewees. Why is it that so many of the answers come from their childhood? Why is it that that the you you know, right you and I talk about it all the time. Now that doesn't inhibit us. I mean, your your Kurt is constantly changing and updating his playlists. There, I mean, yeah. But if you ask me, I go back to my eighties. Well, I right, because that's that, that's your that's, that's your my, home, right? That's my deal. So yeah. so, I don't know. Maybe do there's think, like Doc? a critical period or something. You know, there's like a critical period for language and whatever. Maybe there's some identity development. Cl- critical period we need a developmental psychologist we're gonna call my friend meredith or something but um she's next i guess yeah Yeah. meredith mcginley get on the podcast um she i don't know maybe there's some kind of critical period where we just kind of imprint like little baby birds or something totally guessing so april you talked a little bit about your podcast tell our listeners about your podcast how can they go out and listen to it and how could they get in touch with you yeah everything that i do that is non-sprocket related is on aprilseifert.com and you can find the podcast there podcast is women inspired like i said i'm super passionate about lighting a fire under women's butts and convincing them they absolutely have more power absolutely have more ability and more control than they think they have um you can craft a better 
and more exciting and more dynamic life than what you've got going on right now if that's something that you want to do. And I'm bringing interviews of women who have done just that to share their entire story, good, bad, ugly, lessons, all of it, um, to help give you examples of women who have done, you name it, I've interviewed them. So you need an example of somebody who's kicking ass in one domain, I've got her for you. I've probably got a handful of them for you. So would love, um, and I mean, there's some men that listen to it too, and they, I've, they've reached out to me and said, these are these are universal things you're talking about. But I just tend to you know, focus are. on a women's yeah. audience because that's my jam. But yeah. Awesome. Well, April, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Welcome to our grooming session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our... Our... Big round thing that's on top of our shoulders. (laughs) All right, there we go. So, Tim, impressions from our session with April, what caught your fancy? Well, uh, energy. How about that? For oh number gosh. one. <laughs> did, you, did you happen to pick up on her energy? She had a little bit of energy. <laughs> oh, it was yeah. fantastic. And it was, it was, um, uh, just filled the room. She could it, power Las Vegas. She could. Oh my gosh. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. So, and uh, then she spoke at the, uh, behavioral grooves meetup that we had as yeah. well. I, I happened to miss that one, but oh, she was great. She yeah. was super, dy- of course, every, every bit of dynamism that she exhibits, yes. uh, you know, on the podcast. She and brought she's to a the full, groups. what, seven, eight months pregnant at yes. the time. Oh my <laughs> yes, gosh. So yes. beyond the energy and beyond the just joy of having her in the room, with us what what else from the the topics that we talked about implicit association bias tell me what about implicit association bias captured your attention well i didn't get turned on to this until a few years ago and uh, the harvard work had been going on for some time and i thought oh me oh i'm i don't have any implicit bias oh of course no, not i totally not overcome all that. Yeah, i'm way beyond that <laughs> and ding guess what you know I, I i took the test and found out that yeah i actually i i have uh, i have some implicit biases wow <laughs> yeah big shock right <laughs> so so that really hit me so so the, the when i was when we were talking about it with with april what was going on in my mind was it's not if we have them it's not if anyone who's listening if we all have them right it's how much and to what degree and then as April reinforces, what do you do about it? Right. And I think that is the important thing from my perspective is understanding that, yes, we all have them. We have them to different degrees. But if we want to do something about it, what is it that we can do? And so what did you take away from that? Uh, I, I heard three things that I thought were really good. And, and I think this is based on her work, on okay. April's work. First of all is be aware. Right, because it's a bias, we're not aware. Right, right. So, uh, like taking the test was uh, going out to to that uh, that site actually helped me just become aware of of the biases that I have. Yeah, and you can again Google just implicit bias test, and you can get a number of them. They're Tons. free. Yep. Uh, they're they're wonderful. I started to take one before we were doing this, but I didn't finish. So I'm interested to see what my biases Can't are. Can't wait. Can't <laughs> wait. We oh, I wish you would have finished. We could have talked about that. Um, and the second, so the first thing is be aware. The second thing is talk about it. Okay. Right. So like like this the the value of actually just saying okay this is this is how I come to the table and 
and uh, I'm not always aware of I'm coming to the table with this. Yes. I think that that, um, that enhances your relationships just by having that dialogue. And I think sometimes in those conversations, it lends itself also to better understanding how you interact with those other people who you yeah. may have stereotypes, biases with. And so having that understanding, I think, is a really powerful tool. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the third thing, so it's first is be aware, second is talk about it, and the third is do what you can to remove those triggers. Yes. Right? Because they're there, and we can become aware of them once we understand what our biases are. So right. We can sort of retrace our steps, right? And that lends itself into one of the things that I found really exciting about this conversation is a number of the topics kept coming back to priming. And we talked about being primed in certain things yeah. and having this cognitive association that happens was what she was talking about from the component of stereotype, which is basically priming, which is an area that I just find fascinating. Yeah. So again, those triggers that you talked about are primes. They are things that uh, at a subconscious level within our brain help us, not help us, but make our cognitive thought processes go down one road versus another road. Right. Because those associations are somewhat automatic, right? They are automatic from yeah. a component. And they are at a point that we don't necessarily understand them. It goes back to a lot of Cialdini's work that we've talked about uh, on the podcast before. Uh, just in, you know, being in front of a flower shop, uh, you're more likely to, you know, give uh, your phone, phone number, number to yeah. somebody from the opposite sex. So some of it's DNA, but some of it is environmental, right? Exactly. How we grew up. Yes. The the world in which we grow up in makes a difference. Yeah. Um, I, I found that particularly interesting, too. It, it also reminds me of um, Jonathan Haidt's work. Yeah. I've, I've referenced his work uh, in the past, The Happiness Project. Uh, and, uh, and, and, of course, my favorite is, uh, is the... Um, Self-control. No, oh, no. Let's give it self-control for the righteous. The righteous mind. <laughs> yes. Yeah. John Height's work on the uh, the righteous mind, where he talks about we're not born with a blank slate. We have DNA that, that that we're coming into the world with. However, that DNA gets shaped and formed by the environment, right. and so those implicit biases can be shaped and honed and strengthened or weakened by the environment that we grow up in. And so today, as adults. I'm trying to be an adult, we get, I get to have the opportunity to be aware and to uh, talk, talk about, about it, it and then actually look for those triggers and, and remove them. Yeah. And I think it's a great aspect that as adults, hopefully, we all go out and try to limit the number of negative stereotypes and biases that yeah. we have. Uh, and just going out and doing that. Another piece that that April brought up that I thought was really interesting is she, she brought up this whole component about kind of in passing almost of naysayers of those mm. people who look at this work and just say, well, that's not me or it's something else. It goes into a, a number of things. We had a conversation prior to this about a friend of ours who uh, has a major kind of blind spot in regards to 
all the bad things that happen to him are uh, something else's fault. External forces. External forces. The world is conspiring against him. But everything good is my own personal effort and hard work, grit, determination, and creativity, how, yeah, all of yeah. that. Um, and I think that sometimes we all fall into that trap. And definitely, uh, the naysayers can be. Uh, a component it doesn't have to be about stereotype it doesn't have to be about any of this but we often have those blind spots within ourselves and so that was something that I thought was interesting for for me is to to think about that to think about well what are some of the things that I strongly believe in and and have a a conviction that I talk about that there's probably a number of people that are sitting there shaking their head and going nah that's not how it works or different pieces of it and, and how much of that is real cognitive disagreement based on some deep thinking? Uh, we, we talked about, uh, April talked to us about system one, system two thinking. Yeah. How much of that is that clear, deep uh, analy- analytical thinking that says, no, that's, that really isn't right or that doesn't really jive with uh, either the, the science or my experience? And how much is just system one going, nope. I'm going to write that off. Immediate. Yep. Here we go. Doesn't doesn't come into what my uh, in prior experience was, and so therefore it, yeah. it doesn't fit, and we don't have that confirmation bias that clicks in, or we do have confirmation in the client that clicks in. So as someone that really doesn't do that much, Kurt, how do you feel about, about people who do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my immediate response is they're just idiots. I, I think it's hard. Uh I, I think, again, you look at the world in which we live and it's easier to be a naysayer often than it is to take that hard cognitive look into the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. We fall back on that system one immediate response. What was it? Um, uh, Cal... Uh, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Oh, the, the author of Reddit. Yeah. Kel, Kel Turnbull. Kel Turnbull said about, you know, that first response that we have is typically not the best response, yet it's the one that we tend to we go build to. our walls around and we hold on to yeah. for dear life. There is something about that that I think happens uh very often, particularly when it comes to emotional things, politics, religion, sex, yeah, those types of, of aspects. And it, I, I think it would be of great benefit if we could take a step back and be more rational about it. However, I don't hold out hope. Well, that's uh, it's just not in our nature. No, there was a there's a great article in Bloomberg recently about how uh, people moved away from towns because the uh, small towns that are dying because of uh, the lack of jobs, and some people are moving back. And so they did an in depth analysis of, of the people who are moving back, and some of them are moving back for that system one thinking. It's just this is where I grew up. I'm not going to live anywhere else. Right. You know, the, which is. Pretty, pretty simplistic, uh, quick, uh, you know, quick, quick response stuff. Right. But some people said, if the town's going to survive, I have to move back. I have to show some demonstration and I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to make a contribution to that. And I thought that was really interesting that 
that um, that some of the townspeople have that visceral response, and some of them are taking a very calculated uh, and thoughtful approach to doing something that is extremely difficult to move back to a small town that is very much on the on the death toll. Do you want to talk about music? Yeah, yeah, because that was getting to be kind of a downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know before we started recording, we were talking about music, and you mentioned uh, an artist and a song that you wanted to talk about, and yeah. I was I was excited because I actually knew of it, which isn't always the case when we <laughs> you start talking about the the people that you're talking about, and so it was uh, Jason Isbell, yeah, and the song was if we were. Vampires. Vampires, yeah. I've been a fan of Jason since he was with Drive-By Truckers. Okay. I think his song, Goddamn Lonely Heart, is just just magnificent in, in its simplicity and straightforwardness. Okay. And if you're not familiar with Drive-By Truckers, I encourage you to check them out and check out the track, Goddamn Lonely Heart, because it's just... It, 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 again, he just boils down this very, very, you know big big issue to the very very simple messaging and so, he did that again with uh if we were vampires but he does it in a very interesting way with this song and so tell the listeners if they haven't heard this the the premise of the song kind of the overarching analogy or so the song is about uh if we were vampires we wouldn't have to worry about time and yet, it's, it's the constraints of time that actually enhances our relationship. It's what draws me to want to hold your, your hand. You know, he's, he's, he's speaking as the lover, right? And he's talking to his lover. And he says, it's, you know, it's because of this time, this limitation on time that I want to hold your hand. That, that I know I won't have eternity to spend with you. So oh, I have right, to make right. every moment become more precious. Yeah. And it, or, every moment becomes more precious. The imagery is gorgeous. Yes. You know, the, the nails as the watermark of your love. It's like, oh man, and she's just a tremendous, <laughs> tremendous songwriter. But he delivers. Jason is, is, a, is a great songwriter, not just because of clever lyrics, but because he delivers really great songs. So. Right. Well, it's a fantastic song. And we are talking about, you know, uh, temporal control and time and all of those factors that go into it. It's the nerdy side of us talking about uh, bringing behavioral science and music together. But uh, I think I would uh, welcome anybody out there to go and listen to the song, search for it on your Google machine or whatever it is that you get music on. And with that... Uh, Give us a good rating if you like this. If you want to hear more about a topic or anything, send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you very much.